Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... A ProPublica report details close to 100,000 voter registrations were challenged in Georgia this after the 2020 presidential election, and nearly all these challenges were brought by six right-wing activists. Plus, a study reveals how the migration of Confederates after the Civil War shaped culture and politics throughout the West. Good conversations coming up and later in the program. Celebrating the life of Christine King Ferris live from the state capitol. We'll have more on all of that. But first, this, as WABE Shemaine Cruz reports, there's an investigation into the Fulton County Jail. The inquiry will examine living conditions, access to medical and mental health care, use of excessive force by staff, and conditions that may have led to violence between incarcerated individuals at the Fulton County Jail. Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the Department of Justice, says it will also examine whether the sheriff's office discriminates against those with psychiatric disabilities. Our investigation into these matters is guided by one core principle. People held in jails and prisons do not surrender their constitutional and civil rights at the jailhouse door. According to Clark, 87 percent of the jail's population is black and the vast majority have not been convicted. They are awaiting bail hearings, competency evaluations, and restoration services, or are detained because of their inability to post bail. Clark says the announcement comes after 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson was found dead last year in his cell on the psychiatric floor of the jail. He had been arrested on a misdemeanor charge just three months prior. Those circumstances were far from isolated. Following Mr. Thompson's death, evidence emerged that the mental health unit where he died was infested with insects and that the majority of people living in that unit were malnourished and not receiving basic care. Attorney Michael Harper says Thompson's family is encouraged by the investigation. They have called for the facility to be shut down. The independent autopsy established that Mr. Thompson died due to severe neglect at the jail. And we hope the responsible parties are held accountable. In a statement, the sheriff's office said it will cooperate fully with the investigation. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. And in an additional statement following Thursday's announcement of the investigation, Sheriff Labatt cited, quote, The humanitarian crisis at the Fulton County Rice Street Jail is not new. Recognizing the systemic concerns that have plagued the Fulton County Jail for decades, I contacted DOJ's National Institute of Corrections in September of 2022, making an urgent request for a security audit, technical assistance, and supporting surrounding circumstances at the jail, close quote. 
The state of Georgia is looking to use federal COVID dollars toward grants to fund child care during non-traditional hours. For example, overnights, early mornings and weekends. As WABE politics reporter Raul, Raul Bali reports, the deadline to apply is Monday. Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning Commissioner Amy Jacobs says they're offering three types of grants. If you're a child care program and you want to offer extended hours, maybe on the weekends, maybe earlier, maybe later, you can apply for a grant and we will help fund that additional service. Um, you can be a private business, like a company that wants to provide child care for their employees. We will pay for that. Or you can be a nonprofit, government entity, some type of collaboration that wants to do that for their community. Jacob suggests employees reach out to their child care providers or employers and tell them to look into the grants. She says the department is starting with a limited number of grants as it typically works with child care providers serving traditional hours. Applications for the EXPAND grants are on the Department of Early Care and Learning website. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capital. The DeKalb County Human Services Department needs volunteers for a virtual tutoring program. The district and the AARP Experience Corps collaborated on this effort last school year, and they say said they saw a 70% of students improve their reading proficiency by at least a single grade level. Now, the program is geared towards students in kindergarten through third grade at several elementary schools, including, pay attention, Stoneview, Pine Ridge, Murphy, Candler, E.L. Miller, and Redan. Volunteers must be at least 50 years of age or older and have a high school diploma or GED to participate. The program has also reportedly experienced positive mental and physical health results for the volunteers. So to learn more, contact the United Way of Greater Atlanta or the Human Services Program Coordinator for the DeKalb County School District. Once again, they are looking for volunteers for a virtual tutoring tutoring program. Pretty cool. Finally, it's officially the second half of the season for Major League Baseball. It's underway. And, of course, the team with the best record, your Atlanta Braves. As it begins with an interleague matchup, they are coming back after the All-Star game. So it begins with an interleague matchup as the Chicago White Sox come to Truist Park for a three-game series. The White Sox are not playing very good baseball this year, but... Neither are my St. Louis Cardinals. Anyway, first pitch is tonight at 7.30. Charlie Morton on the mound for the Braves. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here from 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This weekend in Iowa, Des Moines to be exact, the Family Leader Summit is taking place. It's a gathering of evangelical Christians. And in Iowa, the organization wields a lot of political power and influence as Iowa remains a critical stop for Republican presidential candidates. It's been said the emergence of the Christian conservative movement in Iowa can be traced to then Vice President George Bush losing the 1988 Iowa caucuses to Kansas, Kansas Senator Robert Dole 
and televangelist-turned-politician, the late Pat Robertson. But let's go back even further to the early 20th century to examine how specific ideologies formed in parts of the U.S. For example, millions of Southern whites migrated across the U.S., settling in rural areas, small towns, and big cities. And besides looking to settle down and prosper, they brought with them some conservative attitudes on everything, including race and religion. And that was tied to a history in the South. Just released in May of this year was a paper titled The Other Great Migration, Southern Whites and the New Right. And one of the study's co-authors joins me now, Sam Bazzi. He's an associate professor in the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. Sam, welcome. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. Wow. Often we hear about, obviously I've heard a lot about the, the Great Migration as it relates to Southern blacks moving to North, and also we've heard about white flight before. We've also heard about recently blacks coming back to some Southern states like Atlanta, for example, or cities in in Southern states like Atlanta, for example. So this was kind of different because we hadn't had much study on the white migration out of the South to the West. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, I think uh, lots of folks, as you pointed out, uh, are certainly quite familiar with uh, with the Black Great Migration. Um, And, you know, it struck us, uh, my my four co-authors and I, that uh, that there was much more uh, one can do to try and understand uh, what happened to be um, an equally, if not larger, flow of uh, of whites out of the south um they left a little bit earlier uh mm-hmm. than the the black population um but uh but but quite a large outflow um and you know as you pointed out they 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 went really all over um they they settled in in particular parts of uh of the western united states mm-hmm. And intended to uh, to really uh, kind of a- avoid some of the the densest parts of uh, of the Northeast, say, um, but really kind of spread across uh, across much of the United States. Let's give a, a, a if we can a time frame for our listeners as we take a deeper dive into this. We, I mentioned nineteenth century, but here or twentieth century, but let's take this further. When exactly? Yeah, so um, so we actually have a couple of uh, a couple of uh, studies. The one you mentioned, and then a newer one, where we're basically it, it can be thought of as really a prequel. We're effectively trying to distinguish the migrants who who lived under the Confederacy, lived during the Civil War, lived, uh, and many of them uh, partook in the process of enslaving uh, enslaving uh, the black population in the South. Mm-hmm. And so they really, a lot of them uh, left after the war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they left for a variety of reasons. They, some of them seeking out uh, opportunities elsewhere, fleeing kind of the uncertainty about the status of whites in, in, the, newly, uh, in, the, in the newly kind of post-Civil War South. Um, and uh, and they, they really did have this, this intimate experience with the institution of slavery in a way that, that was perhaps distinct from the ones uh, that, that left in the 20th century, say. And so where did you all turn for, for, for data to even begin this? So we are a, a team of economists. Really, quantitative social science is kind of our our bread and butter. And so, you know, we we really did kind of dig into the history and found lots of rich kind of anecdata on specific people and places. But what we what we were really looking for is a way to kind of 
parse out some empirical regularities across a large number of locations outside of uh, outside of the South. And so for that, we really had to dig into historical census records and mm -hmm. and really kind of make sure we're observing the entire population of different places and tracking them as they move across uh, across space and over time. And so one really important kind of piece of, of data here that, uh, that that really allowed us to kind of zoom in on the on the legacy of, of slavery and enslavement that that these migrants brought uh, to other parts of the country is the ability to observe uh, former enslavers and to be able to identify who was living in their household in the South, where did they go after they left. Let me ask you this, because I, I imagine someone listening saying, well, well hold up, uh, Mr. Researcher, how could you determine that they were formerly enslavers? Because that's not an occupation you put on a census, or is it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the 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 um, the U.S. Census Bureau in 1860 conducted um, effectively a census of enslavers, and and from that we were able to actually observe the individual, the the white individual enslavers, most of whom were men, and then link them back to the census so then we know who was in their household in the south and then we can track them after that and these to be clear we're talking about southern born whites obviously that's right yes okay so what states are we looking at you talk about this this southern migration where did they mostly concentrate to or was it all over the place it, it was really all over in the sense that, you know, when we think about the Black Great Migration, we're really thinking about heavy concentration in the densest cities of the North, mm -hmm. right? For Southern whites, it was quite different all the way from the beginning. A lot of them really went out West, right? And so you want to think about in the in the aftermath of the Civil War, this is America is still a country that's moving West, obviously disp dispossessing the indigenous population as, as it moves West. But a lot of these, uh, these Confederate migrants uh, are really kind of settling in some of these underdeveloped places, mm -hmm. these small towns that are about to be incorporated. Um, and some of them are settling in some of the bigger cities out, uh, emergent bigger cities out West, but really, again, avoiding some of the densest kind of places in, uh, in, in the heart of what was at the time former kind of Union territory in the North. One of your findings explores what jobs these Southern migrants ended up working in or, or seeking. Uh, take that Further for our listeners, what what kind of occupations are we talking about here? Yeah, so you know, the, it's really striking when you look at the data. If you compare a southern a southern white migrant to migrants from elsewhere, uh, people born in the given destination where these migrants are going, they really seem to be sorting into these positions of authority. Okay, so what you want to think about um, a whole host of positions with kind of a public facing mm -hmm. uh, uh, authority aspect, right? So things like lawyers and judges, things like uh, working in law enforcement, uh, working as a religious leader, um, potentially uh, uh, other forms of kind of public administration. And these are areas also that are very influential in enacting policies and legislation and other types of social rulings and authoritative power here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are the 
the people, the individuals who are shaping the policies in, in, at a really local level, right? They're determining what the, the kind of criminal justice system looks like. They're determining what the, the, uh, the experience every Sunday when you go to church is like, what you're hearing from the pulpit. Um, they're determining uh, what, what's what you're hearing in, in kind of local, potentially in local media, kind of a broad set of ways in which the, the culture that these migrants brought from the South could could percolate into these nascent institutions. And in a sense, because you mentioned this earlier with these, there are two reports here. But when you talk about the other great migration and we're looking at mostly, you know, white Southerners in the 20th century. And, and I want to focus in on how all this has shaped. You heard me mention Iowa coming into this segment, yeah. how all this has shaped right wing politics and conservative ideas. Yeah, that's a it's a great question and really kind of core to, to to that other great migration, understanding its its political impacts. And so, you know, you gotta keep in mind that the middle of the 20th century and really kind of heats up in the 1960s, this is a period of uh the beginnings of a realignment as the Republican Party is figuring out how to consolidate their kind of traditional economic conservative base with this new kind of uh, racially and religiously conservative base that, of course, is dominant in the South, but through the great other great migration began to spread across the country. Mm -hmm. And because these, these migrants, these Southern white migrants, really settled all over and didn't just concentrate in a few states or a few biggest cities in a few states, they created kind of new electoral possibilities, given the way our electoral college works, the way our uh, our Senate works in terms of uh, over providing over representation to uh, to lower density places. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that that's really crucial. And so as these migrants are bringing racial and religious conservatism to new parts of the country and many more parts of the country, they're creating new possibilities for a, a kind of electorally viable and powerful new right coalition. So basically what we saw after the Civil War and then what we consider the, the era of migration, it, they were there were parallels. They were similar. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think it's it is important to distinguish the kind of the fact that the early migrants out of the South after the Civil War, many of them did have direct role in, in the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, that's not necessarily true for a lot of the kind of mass migration of whites that left the South in the in the 20th century. Maybe their ancestors did, their grandparents, even some of their great grandparents, um, but they didn't have that, di that, that direct experience with slavery per se, but were of course reared in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South and brought a lot of that kind of racially conservative uh, ideology um, to areas of the country where, you know, it, it's not that it didn't exist, that that form of ra racial conservatism and racism didn't exist before, but but these migrants brought in a, in a kind of a pronounced form and and maybe uh, new ways to to kind of uh, act on that uh, that ideology in, in public life. I'm curious, um, this obviously this is an area of, the, of research that interests you, but um, why? <laughs> That's a great question. So I actually grew up in St. Louis. Uh, wait, 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 stop. Also, also you grew up a in St. Louis? Fan. You grew up I in St. Louis? I did not know that. I did. Mm -hmm. I grew up in, in St. Louis and a mm -hmm. uh, Cardinals fan and uh, played baseball my whole life, traveled all over as a kid, all over the, the Upper South and the, and the Midwest. And, you know, I, I, I was always a bit puzzled 
you know, going into some of these small towns to play the local baseball team and yeah. seeing Confederate flags. Mm -hmm. And and that was really striking to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sure enough, uh, there's there was a, a history there that I, you know, I don't, frankly don't think I learned in uh, in 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 high school and, Absolutely. and certainly before that. And so, you know, the, I, I think that was certainly kind of a, in a deep sense where this, this curiosity came from. And then, you know, I'm very in, interested in migration more generally and kind of trying to understand how it's shaped and reshaped culture and politics in this country. And so this was really kind of a, a an episode of migration that I didn't quite, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't quite have my finger on. And so that's really what, what, drew, what drew me in from the beginning. And with this research, where do you hope to take it next? Or where can it lead? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we're certainly still trying to kind of engage in all for, all kinds of outreach to to, uh, to to make sure that our our our, our story and our results are, are finding the right audiences. But we're also uh, quite excited about some some uh, some new work we're doing to try and understand if we can uncover hidden episodes in mm -hmm. the American past of uh, of of racial violence, expulsion, and exclusion. We hear a lot about sundown towns mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so we're actually trying to to kind of bring together some of the tools of these these new AI tools and large language models to study see what we can find in historical newspapers that and and kind of unearth a, a history of violence and exclusion and, and and see if we can understand that legacy in new ways. Now, Sam, before I say goodbye, since we're both from St. Louis, you know what the question is, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Where'd you go to high school, buddy? Uh, I went to, uh, I actually went to Chaminade. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Went to a private school. <laughs> okay. I went to Rosada Kane. All right. Yeah. So you, so you know. I know. You I know. know. That is the question. I should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Bazin is associate professor at the University of California, San Diego. He's also the co-author of a study looking at the impacts of Confederate migration after the Civil War and another on white Southern migration in the 20th century. We'll have a link to all of this. Fascinating story. Thank you so much for taking the time, Professor. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rose. Have a nice day. All right now. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The 2020 presidential election, Joe Biden won Georgia, but Donald Trump refused to accept the results as Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger tried to explain. You have people that submit information and we have our people that submit information and then it comes before the court and the court then has to make a determination. We have to stand by our numbers. We believe our numbers are right. Well, why do you say that, though? I, I don't know. I mean, sure, we can play this game with the courts, but why do you say that? Now, first of all, they don't even assign us a judge. They don't even assign us a judge. Uh, but why wouldn't you, if, hey, Brad, why wouldn't you want to check out Ruby Freeman? And why wouldn't you want to say, hey, if, if in fact President Trump is right about that, then he wins the state of Georgia. Just that one incident alone, without going through hundreds of thousands of drop ballots. Hmm. Well, that hour-long plus phone conversation with Trump, his allies, and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has led to a lot of other stuff. Now, that's the best public media way to describe it. Maybe not the best. But still, after the 2020 elections, a rolling snowball effect 
culminated in controversial new Georgia voting laws, which included changes to absentee voting, changes to local election offices, and the ability for anyone to challenge the eligibility of registered voters. And to support all of this, there's a ProPublica new report that details close to 100,000 voter registrations were challenged here in Georgia. This is after the 2020 presidential election. And nearly all by six right-wing activists. Reporter Doug Bach-Clark took a deep dive into all of this and more and joins me now. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Rose. Uh, let's begin here because that phone call, which now if it was a top 10, it'd probably be still number one in terms of recorded phone calls with elected you know, officials. That phone call really is a, is a snowballing effect here when we talk about what has happened. But I want to go back and I want us to remind listeners about Senate Bill 202 and how it allows anyone to challenge the validity of Georgia voter registrations. Because that's Senate Bill 202 is, is sort of the 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 core of this, correct? Yeah. And I thought that, you know, starting with that recorded phone call between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State was really a, a great way to sort of frame this conversation and begin. Because one of the things that Trump does during the call um, before the clip you played is he starts listing out to the Secretary of State, you know, why he thinks he should have won the election. And he starts counting out votes. You know, I think I should have gotten a thousand votes extra from this place Mm -hmm. and a thousand votes extra from this place. And he lists off about roughly 6,000 votes, which he thinks came from um, basically irregularities in the voter rolls. He Mm -hmm. thinks that, you know, the voter rolls have mistakes in them and that people have sort of nefariously exploited them in order to give Joe Biden some extra votes and that these votes may or may not have contributed to Biden's victory. So fast forward just a few months after that call and the Georgia state legislature passes the bill, which you've referenced SB 202. Mm -hmm. And in that 98 page bill, there's just a few sentence changes that transform how Georgians can challenge the eligibility of other Georgians to be on the voter rolls. And Doug, we're talking about the ability to challenge an unlimited number. And you can That's, and folks could do this just anytime, all the time. Like there wasn't a cap that says you can only challenge once. You could challenge one, two, three, four, five, six times. So the sentence, the key sentence that was inserted into the existing law about challenges explicitly says, you know, anyone can challenge anyone else in their county without any limit. So no no limits to how many people that they can challenge. And this is a real transformation of the law, even though it's only a few words added to it. Mm-hmm. Because previously, according to elections officials and experts, you know, the way that challenges worked was through personal knowledge. Um, most states have a challenge provision. There are good reasons for this. Um, historically and elsewhere, it's been used to help election officials clean up the rules. If mm-hmm. you or I have personal knowledge of why, you know, someone, you know, shouldn't be on the rules, say one of our relatives passed away and mm-hmm. we needed to tell the election officials, you know, uh, my uncle or my aunt or someone, you know, they shouldn't be on here. They've passed. It's a helpful thing. That's what these laws were designed to do. However, by adding this sentence saying, Anyone can challenge anyone else. You suddenly open the door to a very, very mm-hmm. um, 
wide set of opportunities that some people may have then taken advantage of. And I recall reading a piece where these individuals, these challengers, which we're going to get to in just a moment, were referred to one media outlet referring to them as, quote, amateur voter fraud hunters. So folks who were actively, perhaps, maybe not just looking to challenge, but they wanted to find voter frauds, so to speak. That was the mission. Well, so we, you know, we really wanted to get dive deep, see who is doing this, try and get a sense of why they were doing this. And, you know, we so we, we did a, a very, very wide series of records requests mm-hmm. um, in many, many Georgia counties, came back with tens of thousands of different challenges and started examining them. And in the end, we examined about roughly 100,000 different challenges. And we were able to see that of those 100,000 challenges, roughly 89,000 were submitted by just six right-wing activists. And even more striking, um, five of those activists had ties to organizations that had helped challenge the results of the 2020 election. Let's go back for a moment before we get to those those six wing those six folks that you all identify as ties to right wing. Uh, what counties are we talking about here? Mostly Fulton, DeKalb. I know you mentioned Forsyth. Yes, most you've you've sort of just listed off um, some some of the main ones. Gwinnett was also a major place um, where a lot of challenges were going down, and these were you know, of course, are largely in the Atlanta area. Mm-hmm. Challenges also happened in other counties, but the sort of the heart of this, uh, of the challenges that we were able to find were in the Atlanta area. And Doug, let's also for our listeners explain, when we talk about these challenges, what these challengers, what were they actually, did they have proof? Were they saying, I need you to check addresses? Sort of what is the process for challenging a voter registration, the vali- validity of one? So the process of challenging a voter registration goes like this. Um, The new SB 202 law requires that it be in writing. Mm -hmm. And so the challengers will often submit a, you know, a quite extensive spreadsheet, either hundreds or thousands of names. Um, And then they will try and detail why they think there there are legal reasons for these people not being on uh, legally allowed to be on the voter roles in those counties. So there are various reasons that um, the challengers could put forth. They could uh, argue that these people had actually moved out of the county. Mm -hmm. They could argue that these people were uh, registered at the wrong kind of address. So a a very um, common type of challenge is that someone's uh, registered at a business address rather than a residential address. And and as I'm sure we'll talk about later, this can cause uh, challenges for people voting when they are when they have been registered at a business address um, for reasons that will you know that that makes sense, such as they don't have a residential address, they're homeless. And then also too, this puts a lot of strain on county election officials. You know, if you have someone challenging, if, if overall the total number was a couple couple hundred. We're talking about nearly 100,000 throughout the state. That's a lot because that takes up a lot of time. And each one has to be vetted in a sense, correct? 
Yes, ma'am. Um, it's it's a very time consuming thing. You know, we, it doesn't just impact voters and their ability to vote. It also impacts election officials who, as you say, have to process these challenges. And this is a fairly new thing. Like challenges were never done at this scale before. So it's suddenly this huge extra requirement being dumped on them. And it was, you know, being placed on them right in the run up to the 2022 election. Um, so it was extremely impactful. We had we had uh, many officials describing, you know, the extraordinary extra work that they had to do and the extra lengths that they had to go to to make sure that these challenges were processed legally. Doug, were you all able to determine if there was any type of follow up that led to a prosecution or someone being cited for voter fraud? So in talking to officials in, in roughly 30 counties, um, with county election officials, no one had any uh, proof or knew of one of these challenges resulting in a successfully prosecuted case of voter fraud. Um, state officials said that they didn't track this kind of information. And, you know, when we talked about this with experts, they were quite uh, taken aback because you have this small group of people who are really imposing uh, burdens on voters and on election officials, but they're not really showing results. They're not finding uh, fraud. So there could have been some challenges that might have led to discovering something, not necessarily fraud, but it could be someone was a junior and it was a senior or something like that, but no, nothing that would lead to some nefarious intentional acts here. The kind of errors that we found that the challengers were were finding on the voter rolls were just the sort of everyday thing that will, you know, uh, naturally happen when you have a database consisting of millions and millions of voters, um, many of whom are getting their information entered at the DMV or filling out something, you know, a form on the street or filling out something in the mail. It was the natural accretion of, of sort of small human and bureaucratic errors. You know, you found someone who had miswritten their address by a digit mm -hmm. um, or people who didn't understand requirements around certain types of voter registration. There wasn't any nefarious large scale voter fraud here uncovered. And Doug, these challengers, one or two who just sort of kind of was like the you would consider the 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 serial <laughs> voter for voter registration challenger. Who are some of these folks we talking about? So we write about two individuals in our piece. Um, one is a man named Frank Schneider. He challenged over 31,000 voter registrations in um, Forsyth County. And, um, you know, another one was a, a man named Jason Frazier down mm -hmm. in Fulton County, who has recently been twice nominated yep. to the Fulton County Board of Elections. And twice uh, has not been approved. Indeed. And after that, the uh, Fulton County GOP has now sued to try and um, get him on the board. Yes. And so we, we are aware of that and we have been following that. And it can the saga continues, as they say. Indeed. Uh, Doug, I think it's also important for listeners to understand that with your reporting, this is yes, it's about these challengers, but also how the challenges affected folks who were directly impacted, who, whose names, who are these voters, and, and how that Im impacted their life, their emotional state. That should be recognized here. We should talk about that. 
Yeah, so challenges can impact um, people in a variety of ways. The sort of the most extreme situation is when people are removed from the roles. Um, and we found over 2000 such removals from the roles. And in the worst case scenarios, this can actually create a barrier that's too high for people to overcome when they try to vote. Um, so the way that election officials are supposed to notify someone if they're removed from the roles is they send them a, a letter or a postcard. Um, you know, I know that I don't keep a perfect eye on what sort of uh, government mail and other types of mail come to my residence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people miss just sort of these little mailers or they get confused by these letters with a lot of legal language. And so people may not be aware that they have been successfully challenged and removed from the rolls. This can create a problem for them because Georgia requires that you re-register within roughly a month of um, before an election. Otherwise, you're not on the rolls. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of one set of challenges from Frank Schneider that we really dived deeply into, you know, one of the women he challenged was removed from the rolls. And then she, when she contacted election officials um, during the early voting period back in the fall of 2022, she was told she wasn't on the rolls and so she couldn't vote. Um, and that uh, she was eventually able to vote by causing a really big sort of ruckus with mm -hmm. um, various officials within her county, but she had to go to extraordinary lengths to do so. Another man, however, um, who was unhoused and didn't uh, just really, you know, lived far away in the woods in a tent from the elections office, couldn't make the hearing where he was supposed to sort of have his, his challenge adjudicated, was removed and then just, you know, wasn't able to overcome all of the difficulties created by that in order to vote. So it is possible for these challenges to create barriers that people are not able to overcome to get to the polls. Doug, for this report that you all worked on, were you able to speak with either Mr. Snyder or Mr. Fraser, get their input as to why they were so determined to challenge so all the... We, we reached out to them both in a variety of ways, and Mr. Schneider had um, limited email contact with us in which he noted that all of, um, you know, any challenge that he put forward had to be uh, approved by the board before it could impact someone, and that he hadn't been aware anyone wasn't able to vote because of his challenges, and um, Mr. Frazier uh, did not respond to our questions. Any idea if other states had some similar, this trend, this pattern, particularly states that Donald Trump did not win, uh, that they have similar pattern or trend here? So there were mass voter challenges across other states during the election last year. But in general, most of those challenges were just knocked down and were disallowed. Mm -hmm. um, very quickly and sort of efficiently. Georgia had a pretty unique case in how deeply officials had to engage with it because of the new law and um, also because of the volume due to the SB 202s making it explicit that people could challenge as many people as they wanted. And what about moving forward? I mean, were you all able to determine if, talking about Georgia here, if the Secretary's Secretary of State's office then could identify that one, and they recognize that this caused a lot of strain on local uh, elections offices. 
and moving forward, what the, how they could help, or is there anything they can do to to sort of alleviate, you know, these mass unlimited number of challenges that apparently can will continue or could continue. So we did bring our, um, our our findings to both the Secretary of State's office as well as the State Election Board and had um, you know quite a few on the record interviews with individuals from those entities. Um, and the, the message that they conveyed to us was that they're aware that this has been very problematic for both voters and for election officials. And they are trying to come up with guidance or rules or ways to um, to uh, give clearer direction for how to handle these things. So we expect, um, you know, the, the, the chairman of the state election board told us that now that the election is over, they intend to try and address this problem. But how that, what that looks like is something that we're going to see. Mm. We shall wait and see. Reporter Doug Bach-Clark took a deeper dive into all of this. We'll have a link to this report from ProPublica. Doug, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Compelling information here. Anything else that stood out to you that perhaps we didn't get a chance to talk about? Because there's a lot in here. You know, I, I think one of the, the really key points here and one of the reasons that state officials are trying to, you know, offer guidance or rules or, or sort of more clarity for elections officials is there are pretty strict protections, federal protections on how people can be removed from voter rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, the processes outlined in Georgia's current state law can at times be difficult to reconcile with those uh, federal protections. Mm-hmm. And, you know, elections officials themselves, you know, express to us confusion or difficulty in, in trying to sort of interpret where they clash. And so, you know, in terms of following some of these challenges, just at a really granular level, um, you know, experts told us that they may have been violations of federal law. I was just um, about to ask you, are you saying and that we're looking at then the possibility that with, with all of this, that laws were broken federal? Well, that, you know, that is something for lawyers and experts and judges to work out. But these are concerns that were raised um, in the cases of uh, certain challenges we looked at, like the um, two unhoused individuals um, that I mentioned previously, they were, um, those challenges were approved during what um, some people think is, is, you know, was an applicable protected time period from federal law. The county lawyers say that, you know, there are, that they were handling these um, challenges in an individualized Mm -hmm. manner in a way that um, did not mean that they were violating federal law and feel that they did everything legally. But this is an ongoing uh, debate and question between voting rights Mm -hmm. election specialists. Um, And so I think that one reason that the Secretary of State and other election um, officials may be trying to sort of iron this out is to make sure that people don't get caught in complicated situations like that. And then it goes back to the courts. Reporter Doug Bach-Clark, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Compelling report here. Thank you. Thank you so much.
And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. And now we turn to ceremonies taking place honoring Dr. Christine King Ferris. An incredible honor today for Ferris, who died back on June 29th. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, by executive order, and with the acknowledgement of a lifetime of service and a remarkable legacy, ordered flags lowered at half-staff on the state capitol. And Ms. King Ferris lies in state at Georgia State Capitol in the Rotunda today till 7 p.m. We bring in WABE's politics reporter Raul Bali live from the state capitol. Raul, welcome. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing all right. Quite an historic recognition for Christine King Ferris to lie in state. That doesn't happen that often for just regular citizens. You know, the word historic was used multiple times here. Uh, and for two contexts, um, you know, the, the context of um, you know, private citizens. Mm-hmm. It, it generally, these are elected officials, John Lewis, mm-hmm. Zell Miller, that, that lion state here. You know, the number of times that, that it's a someone from the, uh, someone who is not an elected official is pretty rare. Coretta Scott King mm-hmm. uh, comes to mind. You know, I was doing a little history lesson looking back. There was an evangelist back in, in 1906, uh, and then some soldiers uh, mm-hmm. dating back to the 1800s, but this mm-hmm. is not common. The other thing that was mentioned by Nan Orock was this was the purview. This was really only for white Americans. And now you've seen, you know, uh, black Americans recognized mm-hmm. with this honor. And she mentioned John Lewis and, mm-hmm. and, and mentioned Coretta Scott King. And uh, I believe C.T. Vivian. Perhaps. Yeah. I believe so. Yes. You had this reflection in this moment with House Minority Leader James Beverly yesterday. Y'all had a compelling conversation. Yeah. It, and he mentioned it again today. You know, the idea and it's, it, you know, for even if you're here for years, there there are history lessons you don't know. And it, I did not know that in 1968, after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, then Governor Lester Maddox effectively shut the doors of this building. Mm-hmm. Um n- not just, you know, not honoring King, but just shut the doors of this mm-hmm. building. And and yeah. so James Beverly talked about the idea of, you know what, let's honor um, Christine King Ferris. And so he reached out to the governor, um, Minority Leader Beverly, and it was a short conversation and it basically happened. And Governor Kemp was here mm-hmm. uh, along with Leader Beverly. So it's interesting that, and, and as he mentioned on the radio with me yesterday, was this is one of those moments where you see unity, you know, between a Republican governor who's white and the black Democratic leader of the House. And you mentioned Governor Kemp and obviously House, House Minority Leader James Beverly. A lot of lot of dignitaries in attendance there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know many state lawmakers, local elected officials as well. Um, describe the environment. You know, I think the image that that's going to jump out at me you know the the her coffin is in the center of the rotunda covered in these beautiful white red all this range of color of flowers but the portrait of her brother martin luther king jr is actually kind of overseeing the casket and that's kind of the image that i'm going to remember 10 years from now 15 years from now is is the image of his portrait overlooking his sister and and yeah, it was. It was a solemn, but people kept mentioning the word historic, mm-hmm. that she's the person that's lying in the rotunda, and that it was people from both sides of the aisles that made this happen. Um, the other major speaker um, was uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, who is, of course, also the pastor mm-hmm. over at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and that's where this weekend's uh, ceremonies for Christine uh, King Ferris are going to be held. 
And uh, Senator Raphael Warnock also, his election was historic as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. What did he offer about the life and legacy of Miss King Ferris? You know, the the important message was, you know, yes, she was, uh, you know, the sibling of of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, that she was a professor at Spelman. But it was important to realize that that she was the person, one of the things she, she did, you know, many things on her own, but also she was the person to remind people of the memory of King and the message of King. And that was one of the things that was mentioned about her was that was one of her important roles of, of to remind people of his message and what he did. And Raul, as we wrap up, uh, so many folks in there, I've seen uh, Atlanta City Council President, Doug Shipman. I'm seeing mm-hmm. some Atlanta, Atlanta, Fulton County commissioners as well. Obviously, uh, Governor Kemp and First Lady uh, Marty Kemp were in attendance there. A a great showing. Yes, of folks ab- coming out. About to 100. Honor. I'm going to guess about 150 people uh, in the rotunda. And you know, for those of uh, your listeners out there, she is going to lie in state here at the Capitol uh, until seven o'clock tonight. And then there are other services for her um, tomorrow at in, in historic. Ebenezer Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'll there will be a viewing from ten to four, uh, and a musical tribute at six. And then on Sunday, there will be a viewing in New Ebenezer in, in the Horizon Sanctuary at three o'clock. And then her celebration of life will be Sunday at five o'clock. Uh, WABE's politics reporter Raul Bali live from the state capitol. Raul, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Daniel Razel, LaShawn Hudson. Uh, Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineer is Sawyer Vanderwerf. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online, as it always is, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can always listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.